Roll Mountain Radio, Episode 78. Welcome to Roll Mountain Radio. I'm Ken Turner. This is a podcast about Roan Mountain, the jewel of the Southern Appalachian Mountains, always located on the border of North Carolina and Tennessee. Coming up today, we're going to learn more about the mystery of the missing shortleaf pines. And we are in luck because we have an expert in this mystery with solutions to the missing part of the shortleaf pines. Lisa Huff is a stewardship ecologist for the Tennessee State Natural Areas Program. She is going to be presenting at the Winter Naturalist Rally, February the 17th at Roan Mountain State Park in the Conference Center. And this is brought to you by the Friends of Roan Mountain. So we're going to have a conversation and a preview with Lisa about the mystery of the missing shortleaf pine. I am really tickled to have some time to talk to Lisa Huff. I'm glad she's joined us. She is the stewardship ecologist for East Tennessee and the State Natural Areas Program. And Lisa, welcome. I'm really looking forward to your presentation at the Winter Naturalist Rally. I'm intrigued on one hand by the title of your presentation. The title is The Mystery (laughs) of the Missing Shortleaf Pine. It's a total mystery to me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, it probably is to most people. <laughs> okay. How so? Yeah. Well, shortleaf pine uh, used to be the most uh, widespread southern yellow pine. Most people have heard of yellow pine or southern yellow pine. Right. But it used to be the most widespread in terms of its range in in the south. It goes from just west of the Mississippi River in Arkansas and Missouri, where it still has its stronghold today and then crosses east of the Mississippi River. It covered an area from what's known as the Black Belt in Alabama, which is just an area, a type of soil. Okay. Kind of kind of along, uh, it goes below the fall, what they call the fall line into the coastal plains. Some, In fact, it extends all the way down to, to Florida in places like around Tallahassee and whatnot and mixes with the longleaf pine ecosystem. And then it went north in the, in the middle south. It was all over Tennessee except for the central basin and parts of the Mississippi River Valley. But uh, for the most of the rest of the state, it was present, and in the mountains up to about 3,000 to 3,500 feet in elevation is where it started falling out in terms of, of uh, altitude. Up into Kentucky, Virginia, and then all the way up the East Coast, uh, actually there's, there's shortleaf pine in, in New Jersey today uh, being managed in the pine lands of New Jersey. Right, okay. So it was it was very widespread, had a very large range, and it was a very abundant pine. Um, but it has fallen out of the landscape because, like its cousin, the the longleaf pine down in the coastal plain, it requires disturbance to maintain itself, to to regenerate and uh, recruit itself into the into the forest. And that disturbance that was most widespread back in back in the history of our country was fire. So this is just another 
really a, a species that indicates that there have been very large and substantial changes in the things that are happening on the landscape, uh, in the forest landscape of our country. So we in Tennessee and across, really across the range of shortleaf pine, there is an initiative called the Shortleaf Pine Initiative. It's modeled after the Longleaf Pine Initiative, which is an attempt to bring that species back. So there is there is now a concerted effort to to do that, and one of the reasons that effort came about is because there are foresters uh, who their job is to go out and systematically sample across the landscape at fixed stations. And it's a very complicated system that I won't go into here. I couldn't explain it if I wanted to, but it's it's very well run and um, long-standing system called the Forest Inventory Analysis. It's sponsored by the USDA Forest Service. They go out to these, these fixed plots and and have over decades sampled the forest to figure out to you know determine what is there at those those plots. And what they have found over time, especially since say the 1930s, 40s is that shortleaf pine is really starting to disappear from the landscape at a very rapid pace. The reasons are are many. One of the reasons is because shortleaf pine having been so abundant and being a very uh, spectacular type of, of wood, uh, very useful for many purposes, was uh, harvested in, in great uh, abundance. Many board feet of it were taken out of the forest from the Industrial Revolution all the way up through really the 1950s, 60s, and really started petering out in the 70s. It also supported a naval stores industry, so a pitch turpentine industry. Uh, in many places where it was found. So it has a real real interesting history in the country. And if, if people don't really understand or believe that, if next time you're in Knoxville or if you're in uh, Rugby, Tennessee, which is up on the plateau, if you go into any of the extant or standing historical buildings in Rugby, you will see that they are mostly built from, from the framing all the way up to the finish with shortleaf pine. Go into Knoxville and go to the old city or any of the old buildings that have been refurbished in downtown, Barley's Pizzeria in the old city is a great place to go. And you can see massive timbers of shortleaf pine that built those buildings. It was the pine that was around. I mean, I, I recently, within the last year, went up to uh, Mammoth Cave, which is a national park in Kentucky, not too far from uh, Bowling Green and uh, stayed at a, can't remember the exact uh, name of this little uh, whistle stop where I stayed, but it was it was literally a whistle stop, uh-huh. uh, and it was the old railroad hotel. It was all built out of shortleaf pine. Man, I got some really beautiful uh, pictures of the, of the lobby there. Oh, wow. Uh, and the, sta- the staircase is all made from it, and the floors and all the, all the moldings, everything. It was very abundant, and it was a, a very good and useful wood. It's obviously a long-lasting wood. So it was it was harvested um, and it built a lot of the country. But the problem is after the harvest, because of the way it grows, which can be slow at first, especially if it has to compete with other species, and because it does not like that competition, it must have sunlight. It is not a shade-tolerant tree at all. 
So, you know, the oaks, the maples, and whatever can, can out-compete it if there's no disturbance to knock them back. And that's why I mentioned, you know, the, the most abundant disturbance that we had historically was, was fire. Like longleaf pine, um, most biologists consider shortleaf pine to be a fire-dependent species. Some people like to call it fire tolerant, but I, I go so far as to call it a fire dependent species because its cones are semi serotonous and I don't know if you've ever have you ever heard that term, serotonous? I have I don't it, think I've heard the term, but I've I think I know what you're talking about though. Yeah, yeah. So a serotonous cone, um uh, uh, Longleaf pine definitely have a serotonous cone. What that means is it's a type of cone that requires heat or just terribly old age to to open. So cones are built kind of on that that Fibonacci series. You know, they're a spiral. Right. And so what happens is as they mature, they're hanging on the tree. And when a fire comes underneath the tree, the heat coming up from that fire causes the, the resin in the cones to expand and as the, it expands and the gases from, from it are given off, then the cone unfurls, it opens up, and that allows the seeds to, to escape. You can think of that process. So there's a fire burning in the forest, and um, since fires used to burn very regularly, they weren't great horrible fires like what we saw in Gatlinburg, for instance. They were much less intense because there wasn't as much fuel on the ground because every uh, three to seven years you had a fire. Of course, the Indians burned and and, uh, white folk who came in burned also up until we had a closure of the open range law, which occurred in the 1940s. I think it was around 47 when we had a closure of open range. And so gradually burning fell off, and especially with Smokey the Bear coming along talking about how terrible fire was. And of course, fire is terrible when you when you when it's not controlled. It's it's a very terrible thing. Right. It's one of those things we took it too far, and we just started excluding fire from the forest, and talking about how bad fire was for the forest. When in reality, we live on a planet that that came about with fire. You know, so that's. Uh, uh, that's sort of the story of, of why shortleaf pine is, is missing from the landscape, I mean, in, in a nutshell. Along with that species um, of tree, there are a lot of species that lived on the ground underneath that are missing as well. Dependent on the shortleaf pine? Dependent on the shortleaf pine or that type of ecosystem that it supports. The shortleaf pine, there is an actual community type that's recognized by an organization called NatureServe. And NatureServe came about to support all of the different states' natural heritage programs. And, of course, the heritage programs are the parts of, well, like for us in the Division of Natural Areas, our, our natural heritage program is the portion that tracks all of our endangered species, threatened and endangered species, and keeps keeps data on those. So NatureServe supports the, the heritage programs by essentially doing the science behind 
the description of what is on the landscape. There are enough remnants of shortleaf pine ecosystems out on the landscape that they've gone out and they've characterized what those look like. And typically, when they're intact, they uh, the trees are wide enough apart that um, they get big, and they uh, the crowns aren't closed together, mm-hmm. and so light will penetrate through to the forest floor, and that causes things like little blue stem grass and other associated herbs and forbs and grasses to grow on the ground underneath these systems. And so, uh, what I'm going to talk about at the rally is sort of how we know historical clues that tell us about why things were different in the past and how how we know why they were different and maybe what things should should be looking like and how we might get some of that back. It'll be kind of exciting. Any of this specific to Roan Mountain or Hampton Creek Cove? Well, it, it would be specific in that um, any any elevations that you have in the mountains up to that 3,500-foot elevation, right. especially on a south-facing slope, would have been prime habitat for shortleaf pine. So, um, yeah, it's, it's specific to everywhere in Appalachia. Uh, at those lower elevations on the toe slopes of the mountains, on those dry ridges, and if if you look, if you get get into photographic evidence enough and look at pictures of the mountains, you can see, especially at a distance shot, you can see, you know, the leader ridges that go up to the main ridge. They undulate, right, and they have a they have a cold kind of a dark shady face, and they have usually a more exposed face. Right. And it's it's got a classic pattern of vegetation, and we're taught this in in school when you go to forestry school or fish and wildlife studies. You can see that the more exposed sunny face of of these ridges will have different vegetation types. Right. And typically that's where your pines and your hickory and oak and and uh, laurel and things like that come in, and these uh, not so much the hickories, but many of the oaks are fire adapted. Pines, except for white pine, are are very much fire adapted. So in in the mountains, and then of course as you get into higher elevations in the mountains, you get other fire adapted species, which I won't really be talking about, but they they do have a, a similar type of um, associated habitat and that's things like table mountain pine uh pitch pine these are these are all fire dependent species and and table mountain pine is is fallen out of of the mix as well as is pitch pine it all just depends on on getting the right kind of fire back into the landscape really that's the first step in restoration well, the first step in restoration, any kind of restoration, or I would say reestablishment. It's not like we can okay. re- really say exactly what was on an acre of land back in the day. So we're trying to kind of move away from that restoration word. Some people are anyway. But it, it would be the re- reestablishment of, of shortleaf pine right. in, in some sort of a meaningful amount. Uh, ecologically functional amount, I guess you might say. It just depends on the history of the parcel of, of land that you're standing on in terms of what the first step would be. But certainly to have to have meaningful uh, reestablishment of this species, there will need to be controlled burning or what they call prescribed fire on the landscape. 
Yeah. Wow, that's got to be pretty controversial, and we're going to do this prescribed burning, isn't it? Well, I'd say yes, yes and no. In some circles, especially the ones I run in, we understand the need for fire. Right. We understand its function in the landscape, and we understand that it had a history in the landscape. But there are a lot of people who love the mountains who just don't want to see any fire in them at all, who kind of think of everything as a cove hardwood forest, you know. And like I said, when you when you look at the landscape, uh, you do see a vegetation pattern, and it's quite clear um, that it exists. And what happens what happens naturally or what happened historically is that not everything did burn, you know, fire return, well, they call it a fire return interval. In the shortleaf pine uh, ecosystems, the fire return interval is pretty short. It's, it, you know, on average, it's it's three to five, maybe seven years, but it's pretty often. Okay, now explain a little bit the fire return. Is that the pines regenerating within that time? No, it's how often we can um, tell that fire actually occurred on a given piece of the landscape. Oh, okay. So it's, called, it's called the fire return interval, yeah. And the way they establish what that return interval is is by looking at fire scars in old standing trees. So you can find a stump or an old tree and you can take sample from you can do a core in an old you can bore a you know core hole into an old tree and pull out that core and it will give you it's almost like boring down into ice, you know, and then right. you can you can count the annular rings of the ice. Well if you core a tree, you can count the annular growth rings of a tree. And you can also see where it had a fire scar. And then if you find a stump of a tree, you can, and it's got enough good wood in it, you can actually cut the stump, cut a cookie with a, you know, just take out a slice of that stump all the way across. And you've probably seen these, you know, when you go into a national forest and they've got a display or National Park Service and they've got a display of a of a slice of an old, old tree. And they'll show you where the rings are and what the year, you know, they'll date the year, the, the rings. So you can see what year you're looking at, that kind of thing, all the way back to the center of the tree to show you how old it is. Well, they do the same thing to look for fire history. And fire scars in... Um, fire adapted species the species keeps living so it keeps growing and it will just continue to grow around that fire scar and so it gives you a really great historical uh, picture of how many times over the life of that tree there was a fire on the landscape right where that tree was standing and Many scientists from around the southeast, especially from over Missouri and Arkansas, have been doing this work uh, looking looking for trees to sample all across the southeast. And what they call this science is dendrochronology. So dendro meaning, you know, tree and right. chronology meaning time. So they do these dendrochronology studies. And they they can establish for different species what type of fire return interval they had. And, and with shortleaf pine, it's it's pretty it's a pretty uh, rapid return interval, pretty frequent return. Dendrochronology. Dendrochronology. <laughs> that's a mouthful. I love it. Yeah, I'm always up for a new word like that. That's great. Okay. Well, that is super. I appreciate it, Lisa. And uh, look forward to you presenting 
some more information about this, and the more I hear it, the more I understand what's involved in it. I just never thought of the shortleaf pine of being a real significant tree, although everything is has been built from pine, I guess. Uh, well, a lot of stuff harvest. has been. Not not everything, but but a lot of stuff is <laughs> built from pine, and and um, I think it's going to be a great rally. I think all the talks are going to fit together really well. Um, I know everybody's going to enjoy the other speakers and. Going to be kind of talking about these these lost ecosystems that are really highly imperiled today. Uh, so I think everybody's going to find it really really fascinating. Yeah, I think Richard Broadwell, the director of the rally, has really put together a, a dynamite lineup of speakers. This is is going to be good. I'm looking forward to it and glad you're going to yes. be there. Yeah, I'm I'm glad to be there. I hope we get decent weather so we can all get up there. <laughs> we're we're having a real winter for a change, so we, we may be imperiled ourselves in terms of travel. But yeah, yeah, that's winter in the mountains. We'll, yeah, we'll, winter in the mountains. Yeah. All right. Well, you be careful out there in the winter on the mountain, and uh, we'll look forward to catching up with you at the rally, Lisa. All right. Thanks, Ken. Thank you to Lisa for sharing that information in the preview with us. I'm looking forward to her presentation. And come on out to the Friends of Roan Mountain Winter Naturalist Rally. That's a Saturday, and the program starts Saturday morning in the Conference Center. Information on the website, friendsofroanemountain.org, and abbreviate mountain as MTN. Also, you can find links on RoanMountainRadio.com, episode 78. Links to the brochure. Download and print that out for your convenience. There are four programs, three before lunch. One is a lunchtime program. There are four hikes to choose from after lunch. So check that out. That's it for this edition of Roan Mountain Radio. I'm Ken Turner. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the mountain.